are listening to episode 69 of TGTM News, recorded for Monday, June 18th, 2012. You are listening to the Tech Only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek, Talk Geek to Me. And now the tech roundup. From TechDirt.com, did June 1st, 2012, by Mike Masnick. New York Times reveals details of how U.S. created Stuxnet and how a programming error led to its escape. With a lot of new attention being paid to the flame malware that was data mining computers around the Middle East, there have been plenty of comparisons to Stuxnet, the famous bit of malware that was targeted at mucking up Iran's nuclear power program, so it's very interesting timing to see the New York Times reveal many of the details behind Stuxnet, including confirming that it was a program driven by the U.S. with a lot of help from the Israelis. Many, many, many people suspected that already, but it certainly appears that the New York Times has numerous detailed sources that support this claim. Perhaps even more interesting, however, is the fact that Stuxnet, which apparently originally infected Iranian nuclear plants via workers using USB keys when they shouldn't, was never supposed to get out into the wild. It was supposed to just sit in the computers of the power plant, confusing the hell of the Iranians, but obviously that didn't happen. Having that info get out into the wild probably killed off the effort much earlier than expected, since it basically explained to the Iranians what was happening. It's also noteworthy that a source in the article claims that Stuxnet was the first example of using a computer attack to destroy physical items. It made centrifuges work irregularly in ways that could cause them to break. Some have therefore used Stuxnet as proof of the cybersecurity threats out there and the misnamed cyber war. I'm not sure if it's true. Stuxnet still appears to be a rather unique case in terms of a very, very specific target that had some significant vulnerabilities. We hear lots of worries about cybersecurity impacting physical infrastructure, and I'm sure that those who wish to do harm would love to bring down power grids and airplanes through some form of a cyber attack. But I'm not convinced that the success of Stuxnet is so easily replicable in other such areas and I don't see how that automatically justifies effectively tossing out all privacy protections. From TorrentFreak.com, dated May 31st, 2012, by Ernesto, Verizon successfully defends privacy of alleged BitTorrent pirates. Those who download and share copyrighted files through BitTorrent risk being monitored for various reasons. In the United States, those can also include legal action. In recent years, more than a quarter million alleged BitTorrent users have been sued in federal courts. One of the copyright holders participating in this activity is book publisher John Wiley and Sons, who are famous for their For Dummies series. Wiley and others file mass lawsuits against John Doe's, who are only known by their IP address. 
They then request a subpoena from the court to obtain the subscriber info connected to the IP address so they can contact the person in question with a request to sell the case in return for a sum of money. A lucrative business, which can bring in millions of dollars, but also one that has been criticized heavily. Earlier this month, we reported that Verizon had refused to comply with a subpoena that was issued by a New York federal court. Among other reasons, the Internet provider doubted whether the subpoena would lead to the discovery of relevant information. In other words, Verizon suggested that the person who pays for the account might not be the infringer. A valid point, especially since another New York judge stated recently that an IP address does not identify a person, only a connection. Verizon also refused to hand over information or to protect the privacy of its subscribers, which they feel is at stake in the ongoing mass BitTorrent lawsuits. The company asserted that Wiley is seeking information that is protected from disclosure by third parties' rights of privacy and protections guaranteed by the First Amendment. In addition, Verizon noted that the book publishers demanding the information for improper purposes, namely to harass, cause unnecessary delay, or needlessly increase the course of litigation. As expected, Wiley didn't agree with the objections outlined above and asked the court to compel Verizon to comply with the subpoena. However, after a conference call between Wiley's lawyer and the judge, this request was dropped. And that was not all. A recent letter to the court also reveals that Wiley has withdrawn the subpoenas it sent to Verizon. Given the telephone conference with Your Honor on May 14, 2012, we withdraw our subpoenas to Verizon as well as our motion to compel Verizon to respond to those subpoenas. The letter reads, Unfortunately, no further details are being made public, but it appears that Verizon successfully defended the privacy of the accused BitTorrent users. The above is great news for the many Verizon users who may end up in similar position in the future. However, Verizon doesn't seem to protest the subpoenas in all cases. In fact, earlier this month, the company made a huge mistake as it handed over personal details of subscribers before it was allowed to. That said, the ISP seems more value in a system where users are warned and educated as opposed to harassed. Verizon confirmed this stance last week when the company informed Torrent Freak that they see the six strikes warning model as the right solution for the privacy problem. Quote, we believe this program offers the best approach to the problem of illegal file sharing and, importantly, is one that respects the privacy and rights of our subscribers. It also provides a mechanism for helping people to find many great sources of legal content, Verizon told us. The Six Strikes Privacy Warning Scheme is expected to be implemented later this year. This doesn't mean that the mass lawsuits will stop entirely, but it is apparent that Verizon does not intend to cooperate with these practices without putting up a fight. From TorrentFreak.com, by Ernesto, dated May 30, 2012, Mega Upload asks court to dismiss the criminal case. In January, the U.S. government announced that it had initiated one of the largest criminal copyright cases ever brought by the United States. That case was brought against Mega Upload and its key employees, including founder Kim.com. The authorities seized domain names, service, and personal belongings and asked for the extradition of the defendants, who were all arrested abroad. 
Since then, Kim Dakam and his colleagues have been fighting against extradition in New Zealand. Today, the focus is shifting to the U.S. case. Mega Uploads lawyers just filed a motion to dismiss at the district court in the Eastern District of Virginia. Their argument is simple. The U.S. authorities failed to serve Mega Upload as is required in a criminal case. Because of this failure and the fact that the company was effectively put out of business, Mega Upload's due process rights have been violated. To claim due process violation, Mega Upload has to show that a liberty or property interest which has been interfered with by the state and that the procedures attendant upon that deprivation were constitutionally sufficient. According to Mega Upload's lawyers, this is certainly the case here. Both prongs of the procedural due process test are plainly met here. The government has seized Mega Upload's property and domain name, ruined its reputation, and destroyed its business pursuant to an indictment which is fatally flawed as a jurisdictional matter. Mega Upload now finds itself in a state of abeyance with no end in sight, they write. As a result of the government's inability to properly serve the summons on Mega Upload, this court lacks jurisdiction over the company. In the absence of effective service of process, criminal proceedings against Mega Upload cannot commence. And as the court has aptly noted, we frankly don't know what we are ever going to have a trial in this matter. Mega Upload's legal team therefore concludes that Mega Upload is thus deprived of any procedure to clear its name or recoup its property in clear violation of its due process rights. The crucial issue in the motion to dismiss is that Mega Upload was never served. The origin of this problem is not merely a matter of oversight. Mega Upload's lawyer Ira Rothkin previously noted that unlike people, companies can't be served outside U.S. jurisdiction. If this issue indeed prevents Mega Upload from being tried in the U.S., it would be a blunder of epic proportions, and the fact that District Court Judge O'Grady previously acknowledged that this issue warrants further investigation suggests that the motion filed by Mega Upload could be the beginning of the end for the Mega Upload case. From EFF.org, dated June 15, 2012, Internet Archive sues to stop new Washington state law. Seattle. The Internet Archive has filed a federal challenge to a new Washington state law that intends to make online service providers criminally liable for providing access to third parties' offensive materials. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is representing the Internet Archive in order to block the enforcement of SB 6251, a law aimed at combating advertisements for underage sex workers, but with vague and overboard language that is squarely in conflict with federal law. Procedurally, the Internet Archive lawsuit was filed as an intervention into a similar suit, Backpage.com versus McKenna, filed last week. The Internet Archive, as an online library, archives the World Wide Web and other digital materials for researchers, historians, and the general public, said Brewster Cal, digital librarian and founder of the Internet Archive. We strongly support law enforcement efforts to combat child sex trafficking, but this new law could endanger libraries and other entities that bring access to websites and user-generated content. SB 6251 was passed with the hope that 
of criminalizing the dissemination of underage sex trafficking ads and imposing a requirement to confirm the ages of individuals in such ads prior to publication. The law, however, is fraught with problems. As written, the vaguely worded statute making it a felony to directly or indirectly provide access to any material that might constitute explicit or implicit commercial offer for sex could be read to apply not only to posters, but to neutral entities that provide access to online information, including ISPs, Internet cafes, and libraries. This would result in a chilling effect as such entities begin feeling pressured to censor protected online speech in order to safely stay on the right side of the unclear law. Washington's new statute also squarely conflicts with established federal law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, that was passed with the dual aims of protecting Internet intermediaries from the liability for most of what their users do and establishing a clear national Internet policy to avoid the development of a confusing patchwork of state laws. If allowed to stand, SB 6251 would undermine this important congressional policy decision that directly forces free speech, innovation, and the dissemination of knowledge online. It would also set a dangerous precedent allowing individual states to regulate the Internet as each sees fit, establishing a speech-killing race to the bottom with service providers restricting speech according to the most invasive state law on the books. Indeed, in the wake of SB 6251's passage, Tennessee passed a similar bill set up to go into effect in July, and New York and New Jersey are considering their own proposed legislation. From TorrentFreak.com, by Ernesto Dea, June 6, 2012, How Scary is the U.S. Six Strikes Anti-Piracy Scheme? Soon, the Center for Copyright Information will start to track down pirates as part of an agreement all major U.S. Internet providers struck with the MPAA and RIAA. The parties agreed on a system through which copyright infringers are warned that their behavior is unacceptable, after five or six warnings ISPs may then take a variety of repressive measures. A lot has been written on in the press about the upcoming scheme, but unfortunately there are still many myths and misunderstandings. Today we hope to clear up some of those inaccuracies by answering a few simple questions. What punishments are expected? After six warnings, ISPs will impose so-called mitigation measures or punishments. The CCI made it clear from the start that nobody's Internet account will be terminated. However, temporary disconnections are an option. In fact, the agreement between the copyright holders and ISP specifically mentions the option of such temporary terminations. This means that, in theory, subscribers could be disconnected for a week or even a month. That said, such disconnections are not mandatory, and ISPs have little incentive to impose such a strong mitigation measure. A more likely punishment is a throttled connection, where connection speeds are severely degraded for a set period. The agreement specifically mentions 256 to 640 kbps as an example. Alternative ISPs, rather, alternatively, ISPs can direct users to a landing page until a subscriber contacts the ISP to discuss the matter. What happens to those who ignore all warnings? This is an interesting question. Public information provides no answer, but the CCI told Torrent Freak the following. The program is intended to educate consumers, taking them through a system that we believe will be successful for most consumers. If a subscriber were to receive six alerts, that user would be considered a subscriber the program is unable to reach. If ISPs receive additional allegations of copyright infringement for that user, those notices will not generate alerts under the program. 
a CCI spokesperson told us. In other words, nothing will happen under the program. People who receive more than six warnings are removed from the system. They won't receive any further warnings or punishments and are allowed to continue using their Internet service as usual. Who will be monitoring the copyright infringements? While ISPs take part in the scheme, they are not the ones who will monitor the subscribers' behaviors. The tracking will be done by a third-party company such as DTechNet or Peer Media. These companies collect IP addresses from BitTorrent swarms and send their findings directly to the Internet providers. The lists of infringing IP addresses are not shared with the MPAA, RIA, or other third parties. The CCI has not yet published the name of the monitoring company, but informs Torrent Freak that the evidence gathering methods will be reviewed by an independent expert. Each ISP will keep a database of the alleged infringers and send those subscribers to the appropriate warnings. Recorded infringements will be stored for 12 months, after which they will be deleted. What will be monitored? According to the CCI, the copyright alert system will only apply to P2P file sharing. In theory, this means that the focus will be almost exclusively on BitTorrent, as other P2P networks have relatively low user bases. Consequently, those who use Usenet providers or file hosting services such as ForceShared, RapidShare, or HotFile are not at risk. In other words, the six-strike scheme only covers part of all online piracy. Can monitoring be circumvented? The answer to the previous question already shows that users could simply switch to other means of downloading, but there are more alternatives. BitTorrent users could hide their IP addresses through proxy services and VPNs, for example. A recent study in Sweden showed that this is a likely response to tougher copyright enforcement. So how scary is the Six Strikes anti-piracy plan? While we can't say anything conclusive yet, it appears that the main purpose is to reach as many copyright infringers as possible to inform them about their inappropriate behavior. The CCI frames this as education, others will probably describe it as scare tactics. How bad the six-strike scheme turns out to be largely depends on what punishments Internet providers intend to hand out. Needless to say, a temporary reduction in bandwidth is less severe than cutting people's Internet access. However, since ISPs have little incentive to apply such stringent measures, we expect that the punishments will be rather mild. News from techdirt.com, inthesetimes.com, allgov.com, used under arranged permission. News from torrentfreak.com, sacis.org.za, and eff.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution License. News from democracynow.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. News from gpnys.com is a press release. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Like 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work, as well as allowing you to modify the work, so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license.